everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're back with another episode of Just the Zoo of Us. This is episode 56? Yes. Yeah. We've come a long way, haven't we? Sure have. Uh, we are your favorite animal review podcast, where we review your favorite species of animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and of course, aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we do a lot of research and we try our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy resources. And I've done a lot of research for mine this week. I've done an amount. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not confident in saying a lot. <laughs> but we have fun. Yes, lots of fun. If you wouldn't mind, usually uh, we go back and forth between you going first and me going first. And last time you and I did an episode together, I did go first. But I request that you allow me to please go first again. I grant this request. Thank you. I appreciate you granting this request because every minute that I go without talking about all the things I learned about this animal is a moment of agony for me. <laughs> I'm going to explode. Well, by all means. Okay, thank you for allowing me to open the release valve <laughs> on this geyser of information. This week I'm talking about the vampire finch. Fun. Yes. Scientific name Geospiza difficilis septentrionalis or Geospiza septentrionalis, depending on who you ask. It could be considered a subspecies of another type of finch, or it could be its own species, depending on who you talk to. Isn't taxonomy fun? There's a lot of that in this. <laughs> We're going to taxonomy town today. This species was originally submitted by our buddy, the Jungle Gym Queen, um, who actually does a new podcast, by the way, called The Nagging Naturalist. And um, she's a buddy of ours. So go check out her show because it's really cool. And this was also confirmed via social media poll. Oh. This was our, our poll animal for this week. It was up against the kiwi, which put up a good fight. But the vampire finch was victorious. Y'all wanted to hear about the vampire finch, so here it is. Any disparity between Facebook and Twitter? No, this one was decisive. Okay. Um, this one was pretty... The kiwi kind of got wrecked in this one. Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's not to say anything bad about the kiwi, just that the vampire finch is really cool. All right. <laughs> uh, so I'm getting my information from the Natural History Museum in London, as well as the Galapagos Conservancy. Oh. That's a little spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to introduce you to this little bird, it is, as the name says, it is a finch, which is a tiny little, well, I shouldn't say that because actually it's not technically a finch. Oh. Um, but it is a little bird. It's only 4.7 inches or 12 centimeters tall and 20 grams or a little over half an ounce. It's little. It's so little. It's really small. I just want to note. Mm -hmm. We're like five minutes in and we already have disagreement on taxonomy and also a misnomer common name. <laughs> this is going to be a really fun one. <laughs> These are all like complications that are imposed on it by humans. Of course. Just like by the nature of researching this yeah. bird. So as I mentioned a moment ago, they are found in the Galapagos Islands. Mm -hmm. If you're not familiar, this is a volcanic archipelago just west of Ecuador. I think I didn't exactly know where in the world the Galapagos Islands were until I looked a little bit more into it. So off of Ecuador, which mm -hmm. is along the western coast of South America, mm -hmm. west of that 
is the Galapagos Islands. Huh. Yeah. They're technically part of Ecuador. And they are uh, made of basically dead volcanoes. For now. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we've already got <laughs> vampires covered. We could bring zombies into this. I, I meant the volcanoes coming back. That's what I meant. Oh. Like, oh, like okay, okay. Volcano zombies. Sorry. I I ruined my own joke. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. You have to live in your shame. So their taxonomic family is called Thraupidae. Hmm. This is actually the Tanager family. They're not really what's considered a true finch. Though all of these types of finches are like the Galapagos finches are called finches, but they're not. They're tanagers, um, which is a different type of little songbird. Are these the same birds that are associated with Darwin? Yes, I'll get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, true finches belong to the family Fringillidae. So they're not really the same thing, but they look very, very similar, which is Mm. why they got the name. So their genus is Geospiza. And this genus is 14 different species, all of which are endemic to the Galapagos Islands. So endemic means that not only are they native, but they are unique to this area. So you will not see them anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. So this genus, along with about 12 other species of these little birds found on the Galapagos Islands that are not within the same genus, but they're kind of closely related to it. Collectively, those like 26 or so species are referred to as Darwin's finches. Ah, okay. Yeah. So that's where that goes. So Darwin's finches, they are world famous for being linked with naturally Charles Darwin and his studies in the Galapagos Islands and the studies that he did laid the foundations for what would later inform his theories on evolution by natural selection. So didn't quite ignite the spark, but really kind of laid the groundwork for mm-hmm. it. Um, the, the work that he did and the studies he did on these finches led him to later develop those theories. Okay. So the finches played a really important role in this as an example of what's called adaptive radiation. So it's not radioactivity. (laughs) I saw you, the face that you made (laughs) has nothing to do with uh, radioactive materials, radiation more in the sense of like spreading out from a focal point. Okay. Yeah. So this means that, so all of these finches appear to have very similar sort of morphology to each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what this suggests is that they all originated from one ancestral species. Hmm. They all came from one type of finch that got over to these islands. But each of these species has their own distinct adaptations specifically to the size and shape of their beak. Mm-hmm. So finches that feed on different types of food sources have different beak structures. So for example, the ones that eat these really tough seeds have these tough, thick beaks that are good for like, they generate a lot of force so they can crack seeds open and eat them. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ones that eat bugs have these longer, pointier, skinnier beaks so that they can reach inside of plants and, and yank bugs out. Oh. Yeah, and they don't, you know, bugs are kind of squishier and easier to eat than seeds, so they don't need to generate as much force, so you get kind of a thinner beak. Okay. Yeah, so this divergence of species who specialize in different things um, lets each new species thrive in an area where the others can't. 
so whether that's a different location in their habitat. So like some of them chill out on the ground, like mm. the vampire finch. It's a type of ground finch. They chill out on the ground. But then some of them are up in the tree canopies. So they, they might be in physically different locations in the habitat mm. or just a different food source. Like maybe some of them live on the ground and eat seeds, but some of them live on the ground and eat bugs. This lets them excel in their niche without having to compete with other species, right? So like yeah. maybe we live in the same area, but we're not after the same food, so it doesn't bother us. We can share space without having to compete with each other. That's pretty good. Yeah. So this concept is often, you'll see this illustrated by a phylogenetic tree or a tree of life. If you see an illustration of a tree of life, mm -hmm. um, that's how you can kind of think of this idea in which one species branches off into multiple varieties of new species with each one adapted to something a little bit different. So you can see this with the finches. It's kind of like this concept in action. Mm -hmm. um, and since they're little and they kind of like reproduce rapidly, you know, like their generations are pretty close together, they can adapt really quickly. So oh. you can see things like because the the galapagos islands are ge like geologically speaking they're not that old um they're kind of recent huh. so you see this even with like the plant life on these islands that the plant life on there hasn't been developing for as long as it has elsewhere on the planet mm -hmm. it's really cool but you can see this kind of happening in real time with the finches they're still evolving now like they're still changing as for the specific finch kind of it's long been considered a subspecies of the species called the sharp beaked ground finch hmm. and that's geospiza difficilis but then the species was considered split into these three different distinct species and that was by the international ornithologists union but of course they aren't the only taxonomic Authority out there so some still consider them a subspecies some consider them their own it's kind of like it varies depending on who you ask okay so you'll see them listed either way i don't have any strong feelings either way <laughs> i'm surprised anyone does honestly <laughs> <laughs> that's not my business i'm not going to tell them what to care about taxonomy can get super heated well you see a lot of times this like this comes up where it means something like for their conservation yes. or like for their legal status or like where it has real world implications. Yes. This is seems kind of a little bit more nitpicky because <laughs> <laughs> they all they only live on this one island. So right. it's like, what does it matter whether you right. call them a species or not? And I feel like everything there is protected, right? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your primer background information on this finch. Okay. Already it's pretty interesting because I think Darwin's finches are really interesting in general. Mm -hmm. And I was really actually surprised that we haven't talked about them yet. <laughs> we've gotten this, we've been doing this for over a year. We haven't talked about Darwin's finches. So if this is your first time listening, we rate our animals out of 10. And the first category we rate them on is effectiveness, which for us is physical adaptations that let an animal do a really good job of the things it's trying to do, things that are built into its body that let it maybe maneuver or perceive or, or whatever it is they're trying to do. If they do it with their body, then you know we that's what we're rating them on. I give them a seven out of 10. So this species is found on two islands of the Galapagos. There's multiple islands. They're mm -hmm. found on two. These two islands are called Wolf Island and Darwin Island. Ah. Yeah. And these are the two most remote islands in the archipelago. So like there's a whole cluster of islands and then way, 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 way <laughs> out, there's these two tiny 
little islands that, okay, so really cool. You can actually pull up the Galapagos Islands on Google Maps yeah. and go to a satellite view and scroll all the way down and like yeah, be I, kind of visiting virtually. Personally, after this, I think I'm going to look up, look that up just to get an idea of scale. Like, you know, how, how much distance is from one end to the other end of the archipelago? How far away from South America is it? That kind of thing. Because I guess yeah. I, I don't have any idea of scale. Yeah. I'm not going to do a very good job of describing it to you because <laughs> I just kind of looked at it on Google Maps. Sure. But it is it is kind of funny because when you have the satellite view where you're looking at like all of the islands, you cannot see Wolf and Darwin Islands because they're so tiny. Oh, no. There's so little itty bitty. So they're not only tiny, but they're also really difficult to live on. So I mentioned that these are all pretty young islands. Mm-hmm. Wolf and Darwin Islands don't have trees at all. There's yeah. no trees. To describe what these islands look like, when you think of an island, you maybe think of like a plot of land with like beaches where like the edges are beaches that just kind of slope into the sea. Sure. This is not that. Right. They're like giant plateaus. So they're like towering out of the sea and all of the edges, they're not these gentle beaches. They're <laughs> just rock cliffs that go straight down. Right. So all of the plant life on top is all these really like drought resistant area. It's kind of like a desert almost. Um, it's not sandy like a desert, mm-hmm. but the plant life that lives on there is like succulents, shrubs, like grasses, things like that, that can go these long, long, long periods of time without actual fresh water because there's not very many opportunities for fresh water Mm -hmm. the rainy seasons are extremely short (laughs) and and so you know the these it's like cactuses and stuff like that you know like they there's not a lot of water which is maybe not what you would think with it being an island you'd think there would be plentiful water but no it's salt water (laughs) (laughs) so that's just to give you an idea of how difficult it is to live in these areas Mm -hmm. um really the only animals that live out here other than like little invertebrates and stuff like that like little bugs and stuff is seabirds that's it so the uh frigate birds um boobies yeah (laughs) stuff like that those is what lives there and these little ground finches so these really dry really harsh conditions make food super hard to come by for ground Mm -hmm. finches they eat mostly seeds and insects and um, so they have those those beaks that are they're kind of like medium length. They're not super short. They're not super long either. They're pointy and they're slightly curved downwards. They're broad enough to get like a little bit of force, but they're kind of a little bit more like they'll take what they can get. They have some other dietary adaptations going on um, kind of under the hood, but I'll save that for a little bit later. Nice. So they thrive on seeds and insects, but those are not always available because of these lengthy dry seasons. Mm -hmm. So I docked them some effectiveness points for the fact that their food specialization doesn't do them many favors in their environment, you know, like the, so during these dry seasons, they're totally out of luck. There Mm -hmm. are no food or water options for them. They have no options. So desperate times calling for desperate measures. (laughs) The finches have found a very unique opportunity to supplement their diet during lean times um, that gives them their name that I'm actually, I'm putting this in the ingenuity section because this is a behavior that they do. Okay. It is unique to this type of finch because of where they live. So that explains why I gave them a seven out of 10. For ingenuity, I'm giving them an eight out of 10. So the finches share Wolf Island with a few different species of seabirds, like I mentioned. So frigate birds, and most importantly to this topic, a special kind of booby 
called the Nazca booby. Hmm. So these birds have a much easier time living on the island and staying fed because they can just swoop down in the water, grab a fish, go back up to the cliff. It's no problem. They're totally fine. They have no problems living on this island. It's totally fine. They're doing great. So the ground finch has a particularly close relationship with this Nazca booby in that during those dry seasons, when food is scarce and they're getting a little hungry and they don't have any other food options, the vampire finch will hop onto the back of the seabird, peck at their body until it breaks the skin. Uh Yes. Peck at the body, break the skin, and then lap up the blood with their tongue. And drink it. What? Yes. (laughs) You might say that they were feeling a little peckish. (laughs) I promise I didn't make it up just for that joke. I promise it's real. (laughs) So does the bird just let this happen or? So that's the interesting thing about this. The booby doesn't really seem to resist. It doesn't put up a fight. It seems to be just kind of okay with it. And there's a few different suggested explanations. The one that I could find the most like people agreeing with is that this is a behavior that has shifted over time and that originally it started as a cleaning service Mm. where the finch would, would get on the back of the, of the seabird and peck bugs and mites and parasites off of the seabird. So the, little finch was getting a meal and the booby was getting all cleaned and parasite free and that it was sort of a mutual thing Mm. but over time that sharp forceful beak that they have for for pecking seeds and bugs and stuff started to draw blood and the finch just kind of realized oh here's a pretty good source (laughs) of (laughs) here's a pretty good source of potential nutrients and they just made a habit out of it And what's crazy is that they will like swarm. You'll have like a bunch of vampire finches sucking the blood. It's not sucking. It's more of just like drinking the blood of this one booby. I can't imagine being the first person to see this. It it seems like so. I watched a few like video interviews with people who study this, uh-huh. and just it's mind blowing. <laughs> it's definitely not the sort of thing that I think anybody expected. Um, Turn the boat around. This island is cursed. <laughs> We're done here. <laughs> Close it off. I'm sorry. This island is now illegal to go to forever. Nobody's allowed. Give it the Jurassic Park treatment. <laughs> Just shut it down. <laughs> so um, so earlier I mentioned that they have some internal adaptations mm-hmm. to help them survive on this unusual diet. Mm-hmm. So they have special bacteria in their digestive system that let them process these really high levels of salt and iron that you find in the blood. Because, yeah, there's nutrients in there, but there's also salt and iron like there's stuff that you can load up on like you can overload on so so in fact the bacteria that the finches have in their gut is also found in the gut of vampire bats oh yeah so they have similar little internal workings yeah it had a name the name is something crazy it's like peptostreptococcacea i think is what it is it's wild it's a really long name i knew i was gonna butcher it so i left it out (laughs) 
But so this this practice of feeding on blood has a name. It's called hematophagy. Okay. So you see that little root word, like mm-hmm. hema, that you see in other words for blood? But would that only apply to red-blooded animals? So I, I know that like in, in our blood, we have hemoglobin. Yeah. But then other animals might have like, what is it called? Like cyanoglobin or something yes. like that? Yeah, something like that. But the, the hema prefix comes from i think it's greek maybe it's latin i think it's greek um the word for just blood itself so i don't think it necessarily specifies like yes they have this red blood Mm -hmm. i think it's just blood in general okay but so hematophagy is uncommon among most animals but not unheard of obviously mosquitoes drink blood Mm -hmm. um vampire bats drink blood and actually vampire finches are not the only bird that drink blood actively Mm. um there's a few there's quite a few examples but one of them that i picked out to call out specifically is oxpeckers so you know these are the birds that land on large mammals yeah. in like african grasslands and stuff so you'll see them on rhinos you see them on hippos and cattle ox which is where they get their name oxpecker so they land on these large mammals and they feed on ticks and parasitic insects on that live on the bodies of their hosts but they will also, so when like a tick or something like that gets on the animal and leaves a sore or an open wound, after the bird has taken the, the bug out, then they will drink the blood hmm. from the wound. And actually, they have been observed using their beaks to exacerbate the wound that was already left. So they'll actually kind of tear it open a little bit more to get more blood flowing so that oh, they can wow. drink it. And actually, the like, even though that was that has for a long time been considered a mutualistic relationship that they're like helping each other out, it actually kind of seems like the host mammal does not like it, and they actually <laughs> try to avoid the oxpecker landing on them. Oh, yeah, like they'll they'll try to like shake them off or <laughs> please, or please no, <laughs> yeah, like they don't they don't like it as much as people originally thought they did, probably because they're drinking their sure. blood. So with the vampire finch, are they still eating bugs and stuff off the the, the seabirds and but are they or are they just doing the blood stuff so they don't actually the this blood drinking stuff is not something they do all the time oh, okay. um this is like i said it's something they do during the dry season when they don't have a lot of food options mm-hmm. and i think it's just like over time that has just become a side effect of this cleaning behavior i didn't see anything that said that they are still cleaning the parasites off of the seabirds but it's 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 not something that they are like solely relying on sure. it's not like a huge part of their diet but it is something that they use to survive and get through the dry seasons hmm. but so yeah there are a few other birds that drink blood um i didn't note them down specifically but it's not entirely unique but it was very unexpected sure. <laughs> for this little finch to uh to be doing that all on its own out in the galapagos yeah. islands that was an unexpected find a yeah. little more brutal than anticipated it's definitely not something we see every day yeah no <laughs> Definitely not. I saw that there is a type of mockingbird that does drink blood. Of course. Of something. <laughs> <laughs> I did not look any further into it, maybe because I wanted to preserve my idealization of mockingbirds in my head because I like them very much, but <laughs> that was just me. So this brings us to aesthetics for the vampire finch. I give them a six. 
six out of ten. They're really plain looking. There's really nothing interesting to look at about them. That's unfortunate. I They're... was hoping for a crimson red bird. No, yeah, that would be really cool. Like if they had really leaned into the vampire aesthetic, yeah. even though that is something that we just ascribed to that them just based on our own like pop culture and stuff. Yeah. Um, would have loved it if they had little fangs poking out of their beak. That would have been great. <laughs> But they're just a plain little brindle-colored bird. Not super interesting. Not particularly cute. Hmm. Um, they also the the matted blood stains all over their face don't help. It doesn't <laughs> doesn't really do a lot for me particularly. Okay. So six out of ten. They're not ugly. I'll say this: they're not ugly. But sure. They're not cute either. Uh, miscellaneous information for the vampire finch their conservation status is vulnerable mm -hmm. so their populations are stable and trends don't seem to be going up or down for them but they are because of the place where they live they're super at risk yeah. of like it would take very very little disruption to their ecosystem to put them into an endangered or critically endangered status yeah so very little could tip them over yeah and that seemed that's probably very common for the species that live there yeah i think you're gonna see this with like any animal that lives in the galapagos right mm. because of how isolated or at that least, ecosystem at least things is. that are endemic to the galapagos yeah so just because of how isolated that area is um it it would take very little to threaten their population mm -hmm. so you just have to be careful so luckily for them human activity on the islands they live on is very little being difficult to access because of those high rocky cliffs and also there's nothing on it <laughs> there's nothing there just it's just rocks and shrubs and freaky birds that's all there is there you know there, it's not a tourist destination right there's no tourism on the island there's no visitor center there's nowhere you can go the only way you can get there is on a helicopter so it's it's just not the sort of place people are going to hang out so that's lucky for them they're safe from like human activity at the sort of casual level sure they don't have to worry about humans introducing any sort of weird like you know mammals or whatever that yeah. could mess them up there are divers that, that go to this island because there is a ton of marine life around there. Mm -hmm. Apparently, hammerhead sharks like to school there, and it's really cool. So so divers like to go to the island, but they stick to the water. They don't go up on the island. They're just right. there for the diving. So luckily, all of that has not been a huge problem, but it's just something to keep an eye on because they're in a precarious situation. Not necessarily, it's, it's not necessarily affecting them right now, but it could if anything ever happened. So that's why they have a vulnerable status. Status. Hmm. And that's all I had. That's very interesting and unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> right? So when I had heard of the vampire finch and I wasn't really sure of the mechanisms that it was using, because usually I feel like the word vampire implies a, like a sucking, like a suction sort of mechanism. This is more just like bloodletting. <laughs> yeah. I guess for me, what I was expecting was one of two things. So one was either behavior that had earned them the title or maybe just a look, right? Oh, yeah, because <laughs> we've talked about the vampire squid. Right. That did, uh, vampire was completely just an aesthetic yeah. uh, ascription. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. They're full on. They went really hard. That's the vampire finch. Thanks, honey. You're welcome. Just the Zoo of Us is made possible by donations or 
contributions from our patrons on Patreon. And this month, I want to thank Jacob Jones, Jacob Schick, Kyle Rauch, April Kamick, Vikram Baliga, Brianna Feinberg, Sarah Peterson, Dalton Weeks, Brandon Everfolly, Megan Clark, Paul Chomo, The Jungle Gym Queen, and Christina Sanders. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. All right, hon. You're up to bat. The animal I'm bringing this week is the Eastern Indigo Snake. Mm, this is a pretty boy. Yes. Scientific name, Drymarchon Cooperi. I probably should have looked up how that was pronounced. It's fine. You got it. <laughs> Act confident. Yeah. This species was submitted by no one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's our show. We do what we want. Although there has been discussion around it, just no one explicitly requested it. I'm doing it anyway. I'm getting information from the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute, found at nationalzoo.si.edu. Also, frequent source, Animal Diversity Web, found at animaldiversity.org. We need to get a little air horn to blow every time we mention <laughs> Animal Diversity Web. Just we need to have a little celebration every time yeah. we mention them. Yeah. We should give them money. Your <laughs> <laughs> University of Michigan. Anyway, a little bit of basic info about this snake. First, what they look like. And I'm going to use a direct quote from the National Zoo's website on what they look like, because I felt like it summarized it perfectly. Beginning quote, This snake's large, smooth scales are uniformly glossy black, with red or cream-colored accents possible around the chin, throat, and sometimes the cheeks. End quote. Now, also, in direct sunlight, those scales are iridescent. Yes! <laughs> no, we're talking! Yeah. So they're very pretty. Are they chonky? Not really. I mean, they're not pit viper chonky or anything. They're, sure. They're, they're big. So speaking of which, their adult size, their average length is one and a half to two meters or five to seven feet. But their record length exceeded two and a half meters or eight and a half feet. Whoa, eight and a half feet? Yes. That's huge. <laughs> I had no idea they got that big. Yeah, they do, apparently. <laughs> so these are the largest native snakes in the United States. And also North America. Really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> there seems to be some contention at the continent scale. Because there's some other snakes that get close that are also native. But we'll say indigo snake for now. Yeah, it's our show. <laughs> we'll say what we want to say. Uh, their hatchlings are 43 to 61 centimeters long or 17 to 24 inches long. That's really big. They're over a foot long when they're Born? Yeah. <laughs> How big is the egg? I don't know. That's got to be pretty big. If it's fitting a foot-long snake in there. <laughs> a little. Talk about where in the United States they're found. They are in the southeastern United States. So Florida, parts of southern Georgia, Alabama, and a small portion of southeast Mississippi. And they were previously found in very small parts of South Carolina, but not so much anymore. That's sad. Y'all are missing out. <laughs> Sorry for your loss. They're found in a wide variety of habitats that include pine and scrubby flatwoods, pine rocklands, sand hills, dry prairie, edges of freshwater marshes, agricultural fields, and human-altered habitat. Okay, so they're kind of generalists. Yeah, they get around. And they often go underground due to temperature changes. In our area, they often use burrows that were made by gopher tortoises. That's smart. Yeah. Work smarter, not harder. <laughs> Their taxonomic family is Colubridae. Which is the largest family of snakes. It's 200 plus different genera. Do you mean largest as in like the most species? Yes, or like the, the snakes themselves are very large? No, the most species. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
other notable evolutionary relatives in that same genus, there's the blacktail cribo, which is also known as the middle American indigo snake. And that's found in Southwest U.S., Mexico, Central America, and the northern parts of South America. They have an interesting coloration. So this blacktail cribo, they, they go from a tan color on the front half to a dark, almost black coloration towards the end of the tail. It's almost like a gradient. Oh, you know, I <laughs> love a good gradient. That's very cool. So an interesting relative. I'll I jump- guess that's where they get the blacktail part of their name. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping right in, first category of effectiveness, I'm giving a 7 out of 10. Very good. So these snakes are non-venomous. Put that right out there. (laughs) Okay. So we don't have to necessarily be afraid of their bite then. Correct. So how do they kill their prey then if they are not venomous? Well, here's something that's interesting. I assumed, you know, if something is not venomous, that automatically makes them a constrictor, which is not right. Okay. What are they doing? These are also not a constrictor. What they do is they simply overpower their prey to eat them alive. Go for it. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Overpower them in what way? They don't have arms. They can't be choking them out. Jaw strength. Really? Mm-hmm. What are they biting? That's <laughs> uh, funny you asked that, because my next point here was their prey. So they eat small mammals, birds, frogs, turtles, turtle eggs, and other snakes. Okay, Inclu- go for it. Including venomous species like the cottonmouth. Get them! <laughs> Get them! Yep. So is it just that they're like... They basically bite and overpower them until they're exhausted. Oh, so they just cling on? Basically, yeah. Are they like going for the head and just like crushing the head or what? No, it's just just grabbing on. I mean, eventually they need to get to the head, right, to swallow it, but mm -hmm. they'll just grab on until the thing is exhausted and then they'll eat it alive. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Listen. (laughs) Uh, They have few predators at the adult size. I would imagine. Yeah. Another point for effectiveness is their reproduction. So their females are able to store sperm and delay fertilization when necessary. Okay. Yeah. Just going to hold on to that. (laughs) Also, there are reports of parthenogenetic reproduction. (gasps) Really? Yeah. I love this. (laughs) Which is a form of asexual reproduction in which embryos develop without fertilization. Just on your own. Yeah. It's a clone, right? Well, so that makes it tricky, right? It's hard to tell if a female had just been holding on to sperm for a long time or if they just went and like, you know what? I don't need no man. (laughs) (laughs) I make my own. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, just clone yourself, girlfriend. Yeah. Because there was. The Smithsonian cited one case where there's a a female that was kept uh, by herself for four years and then laid eggs. (laughs) So it wasn't sure if that's how long she held on to sperm or if she just did the, um, the asexual reproduction. Huh. Yeah. That's a tricky one. Mm-hmm. They really don't like to reveal their secrets. I guess I, <laughs> this is getting too, too deep for my knowledge, but maybe one could tell the difference based the, like looking at the, the Young's genetics. I don't know. Yeah, like maybe you could do some sort of deep, deep, yeah. deep analysis of like the genome of the offspring. Right. So what that- kind of budget you got for that? <laughs> right. You got snake genome money <laughs> in this economy? <laughs> so that's their effectiveness. Moving on to Ingenuity, I'll give them a 6 out of 10. I don't have much to give them here. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, they utilize burrows created by other animals, so I thought that was a good idea. And in places where there aren't burrows, they just use like holes in trees and such. 
<laughs> I just tried to think of them digging their own burrow, and it's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> just use my face as a shovel. Now, I have seen other snakes <laughs> yeah. that do make their own burrows, and it is very much like that. Yeah, basically. <laughs> we were talking about how they kill prey. Sometimes they may press prey against another surface to immobilize them. So it's not just a, a hold. They'll also press them up against maybe the side of the burrow that they're in or the ground or what have you. Okay. Yeah, that's, about the, them. that's about the extent of it. <laughs> Because if they're not constricting, they're not injecting venom, that's what you're basically left with. Sure. And they have no hands to <laughs> choke anyone with. Yeah. Or, you know, they can't punch. They can't kick. Yeah. yeah. They have limited options. <laughs> Moving on to aesthetics. I'll give a full 10 out of 10. I think they're sleek black aesthetic and it radiates color in direct sunlight. So It's got a little rainbow that just like bursts out of them when you see them <laughs> in like just the right light. Yeah. It's really cool. They're neat. They're beautiful. They have a lot of miscellaneous information on them. That didn't really fit into any of the categories. We're back heavy on this one. <laughs> a lot of it is around their conservation. So first I want to talk about what their ecological roles are. It's similar to a lot of snakes in that they control the populations of rodents. But in addition to that, they also control the populations of the snakes they eat. So venomous snakes. Mm-hmm. The dangerous ones. Sure. And, uh, and even in then, air quotes. E- yeah, even then, I would say dangerous. <laughs> in air quotes, Nobody can see the air quotes that you're I making. Know. But. but here's some of the challenges uh, that present themselves to the indigo snake. So, first and foremost, the biggest thing that impacts them is habitat loss and deforestation due to human development. And that's because the places that they're found are very popular places to develop, particularly in Florida. Some other challenges that they face is overcollection for the pet trade. Oh, okay. This yeah. makes sense. They're um, so pretty. And, and they're also just... relatively docile. So <laughs> Yeah, they're like not very dangerous and they're super pretty. So it's yeah. like low risk, high reward. Right. I could I could see why a person would look at it and think, oh, this would be a good pet for me. Sure. But also don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Habitat fragmentation, which we've talked about a couple times now. Right, where something splits off a whole uh, range of habitat for them and then splits them up into two smaller groups, right? And then those groups have a hard time maintaining viability by themselves. Yeah, so like this is where, uh, in say in Florida, for example, an example might be like a golf course Mm -hmm. that might be built. This this is Florida is like the golf (laughs) course capital of the universe. (laughs) So like you build a golf course that splits this indigo snakes uh, sort of range in half. So now instead of just having one big giant range of indigo snakes, you now have two pockets that are isolated from each other. So they can't reach each other to breed. So they have to breed within their pocket. And then you get a lot of inbreeding and then you get some genetic problems and Mm -hmm. it's just bad for biodiversity. Right. And then also I hate to put a damper on things, but apparently there's an activity where people it's called gassing of gopher tortoise burrows by rattlesnake collectors. Rattlesnake collectors. Yeah. So there's this not so great method of getting rattlesnakes to come out, which involves putting gasoline fumes 
into burrows and holes so that rattlesnakes will come out trying to escape the fumes and they're also dazed while doing it oh no so this practice is pretty awful yeah generally (laughs) not just for the indigo snake but because it can result in killing all sorts of animals right yeah i mean what if it's not a snake that's in there you know right and generally speaking not a great idea to just kind of dump gasoline on the ground anywhere (laughs) (laughs) unless it's the gas tank of your car don't put gasoline in it sure so that's not great. So people that are doing this, are they collecting the rattlesnakes to kill them or are Usually, they collecting them yes. to keep them? Well, you see this in other parts of the country, not so much in Florida, but uh, I think this is more common in Texas, for example, Yeah, where they'll have festivals, basically, where the whole idea is go out, catch rattlesnakes, someone will pay you X number of dollars per pound for a dead rattlesnake or a live rattlesnake or something. So we have talked about something similar to this with the incentivized hunting of lionfish. Mm-hmm. But the difference being that lionfish are an extremely harmful, invasive species. They don't go there. They were introduced there and they're reproducing out of control and they're causing a lot of ecological harm. So that's very different from just killing rattlesnakes yeah. because you don't want them to be there when they've been there longer than you have. <laughs> yeah. So usually it seems that these kind of festivals are in the name of one tradition in air quotes and then fear um because arguably the the rattlesnake is i believe the most venomous snake in the united states although it only ranks somewhere in the 20s in terms of overall like across the globe and i just want to take a note because i i kind of have a bone to pick always <laughs> when folks are trying to kill venomous snakes according to the uf department of wildlife ecology and conservation due to the availability of medical care about five to six people die of a snake bite per year in the united states which means you are nine times more likely to die of a lightning strike than a venomous snake bite. <laughs> yeah, and it's not only that, but it's not only like because of like the le- the low lethality of the bite and yeah. the availability of treatment for the bite. Also, they're not as likely to bite you as you think they are. Right. They don't want to bite you. They want to get away from you and not be involved with you in any way. Sure. So they're probably not going to bite you as long as you leave them alone. I understand that a lot of times encounters with them are not intentional. Yeah. Maybe you step on it. But still, you know, just they're not malicious. Like people think they want to bite you but they don't. Yeah. And also like a lot of times people are not as good as they think they are at identifying snakes. Yes. So they might see a snake and immediately assume that it is a dangerous venomous snake and kill it just because it's a snake. Right. And then, you know, with these kinds of festivals, we're talking in the magnitudes of thousands to tens of thousands of snakes being killed. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. (laughs) It's a bit of overreaction. I think I've been seeing a lot more like coverage of, I'm not, I'm not even going to say the dark side because the whole thing is just one giant dark side. Yeah. It's just one big no-no. Um, but I think I have been seeing a little bit more like press attention that's more geared towards rather than just covering the event and saying, look at this fun thing people are doing. They're actually starting to say like, hey, why are y'all doing that? Can mm. you not? Sure. sure. <laughs> why we should not do this? <laughs> no, I think in the past, I, I can't remember where this came up, but we talked about how the indigo snake might be affected by invasive species of snake in that you know perhaps they are competing for the same resources or that kind of thing Mm -hmm. i couldn't find any direct 
evidence for the indigo snake in particular. Sure. It's just, I think we can safely assume though that that happens to some degree. Yeah. So I remember coming across this with, um, when we talked about Burmese python, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, with, with Burmese pythons down in South Florida, the Burmese pythons are kind of killing the game. They kind of have it cornered sure. because they're much bigger. Oh yeah. Like, um, like the, the average size of an adult Burmese python is where the maximum sits for the indigo snake. So yeah. the maximum size of a Burmese <laughs> python is much bigger than any indigo snake is going to yeah, be. Yeah, they're huge. <laughs> so they're huge. They're just a lot more competitive for like larger prey yeah. um, than indigo snakes are. And so just down in like the su- southern end of Florida in particular mm-hmm. where Burmese pythons are, they can be really threatened by that. Yeah. Now Burmese pythons can't, my, my understanding is that they cannot survive have a freeze so they can't get much farther north than they already are so they're kind of contained to the southern florida area but in south florida they're popping off they're like reproducing at an insane rate and like nobody can slow them down and they're just unchecked and going crazy so not indigo snakes don't stand much of a chance there yeah so next I'll just talk about, you know, where, what their classification stands among the different organizations. So with the IUCN, they're of least concern because they're primarily looking at them as a species overall. Mm-hmm. But the United States Fish and Wildlife Service lists them as threatened. They have a full protection as a threatened species in Florida and Georgia, and they're protected as an endangered species in South Carolina and Mississippi. Also, Fun fact, those in institutions accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums are managed under a species survival plan. Nice. Yes. I love to hear that. Yes. Love to hear a species survival plan. It's <laughs> good stuff. Yep. So our local zoo has at least one indigo snake, I believe. We've but- seen it before. Since the, the exhibit, I believe that the exhibit they have them in is indoors. Mm-hmm. So you don't really get that like iridescent effect. Right. But still... Yeah, they have them. And our our zoo is AZA accredited. Of course it is. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of wrapping up conservation, just want to chat about what you can do. And again, I'm going to directly quote what the Smithsonian website says, because they put it in the best words, I believe. Choose your pets wisely and do your research before bringing an animal home. Exotic animals don't always make great pets. Many require special care and live for a long time. Tropical reptiles and small mammals are often traded internationally and may be victims of the illegal pet trade. Never release animals that have been kept as pets into the wild. If you see a snake in the wild, leave it alone and encourage others to do the same. Don't assume it is a venomous species and don't attack it if it doesn't pose a threat to your safety. Tell your friends and family about the eco-services that snakes provide, such as keeping rodent populations in check. End quote. You know, I think because on like social media and stuff, I have curated uh, my circles to the point that I'm kind of surrounded by other people that have a tendency to like and appreciate animals Mm -hmm. like at maybe a higher degree than the average person. But then so earlier, was it this week or was it last week? Last week, Mm -hmm. we had two snakes on our porch. At the same time. Yeah. Um, one of them was a mud snake, which is not venomous. The other one was a cotton mouth <laughs> <laughs> or water moccasin, which Christian yeah. talked about in one of our early episodes. Very, very venomous. It was a juvenile, though. It was just a baby. I mean, it was coiled up in about the size of the palm of your hand. Yep. 
just a little baby. If not we did not pick it up. That that no. was just a size comparison. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> we did not go. I went a little close to it to get pictures, um, because I was using my phone. Sure. So I got kind of close to it, but um, we did not touch it. We uh, Christian poked it with a broomstick to make sure it was alive, and that was the only interaction we had with it. But so I thought it was so cool, so I took pictures and I. I posted it on Facebook and then like my neighbor shared it because she was watching from her house too Mm -hmm. um, and thought it was cool. And I kind of realized quickly that like, oh, I forgot that people outside of the circles I run in are not as snake friendly as we are. So a lot of the comments were about how like, oh, I kill those on site and like I kill any snake I see. And I was like, oh, no, I forgot. God. Yeah, I mean, and that's unfortunately a, a common attitude. But you know, we personally try to like say otherwise when we meet folks that express those kinds of feelings. Yeah, a lot of it is just based on myths, um, mm-hmm. like just kind of folk lore that has been handed down without being fact checked at any point. Um, so with the sure. cottonmouth the common response people would have was, oh, they'll chase you. Like, yeah, yeah. they don't. They won't do that. They don't. <laughs> they won't run from you. They're not scared of you. Well, they're a little scared of you because they will bite you if you touch them. But they right. won't run from you. But they're not going to chase you. Yeah. <laughs> they don't really care that much about you. So as long as you leave them alone and don't touch them, you're not going to have any problems. Yep. So we didn't touch this one other than poking it to see if it was alive. Uh, we left it alone. We didn't touch it. We didn't move it. And it just, it hung out on our porch and probably ate some frogs, we're assuming, because our (laughs) porch is frog heaven. Probably ate some toads and slithered on away, and it was gone in the morning. Yep. No problems. Don't kill snakes. You don't have to do that. Yeah. And then my final little side facts about the eastern indigo snake. They are a diurnal species, uh, so they are active during the day. And their lifespan in the wild is unknown, but the oldest recorded in captivity was 25 years and 11 months. That's old. So kind of going back to that point, you know, a lot of exotic pets can live for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Don't keep them in your house. You don't need to do that. There's no reason for you to do that. Well, in many cases, uh, you have to have a special permit to to legally own an indigo snake. Um, So there's that. That doesn't stop some people. (laughs) Well, we'll notice a lot of venomous snake bites occur in those kinds of settings. (laughs) Yeah, where people are messing with animals they shouldn't be messing with. (laughs) Anyway, that's the Eastern Indigo Snake. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad that you got to talk about a snake. Me too. (laughs) I know that's your happy place. (laughs) Well, that's all for us this week. So thank you so much to everybody who has tuned in this week and previous weeks. Um, Just having you with us is very meaningful. We appreciate you. Uh, You can connect with us and hang out with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching the title of the show, and that will take you to us. Come hang out in our Facebook group because it's popping, and that's where we do. So Facebook and Twitter are where I do the polls for which animals Christian and I talk about. Um, So you can be a part of the process. Your voice matters. Part of democracy. (laughs) 
I know my pick this week didn't exactly reflect that, but the next Mine one. did. <laughs> Mine did. Yeah. I, I did. And we're slaves to public opinion. So <laughs> what you guys say goes. We do it. Um, if you have an animal species that you want to hear us review, you could submit those to us. You can either shoot them to us on social media. I promise we'll see them. Um, or you can email them to me. And my email address is ellen at just the zoo of us.com. And final note to wrap up, I want to thank Louis Zong for allowing us to use his song Adventuring off of his album B Sides. It is so good. You're going to be hearing it now. It should be fading in. Oh, here it comes. Bye. Bye, y'all. <laughs>